1 Samuel chapter 13. Um, you can follow along on the screens as well. Here's what God's word says. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years, when, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops, like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And, Sam and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly, for you have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal and the rest of the people up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp and the Philistines in three companies. One company turned to Ophrah, to the land of Shul. Another company turned toward Beth Horan, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. Now there was no back blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for the sharpening of axes and for the setting of goads. So on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Well, let's pray together um, and ask that the Lord teach us through his word this morning. 
Lord Jesus, as we just come to your word, we just want to confess we, we need you. We need you to be our teacher today. Would you help this story make sense to our ears and to our minds? And um, Lord, because we know that your word is written that we might see you and know you, we ask that you'd help us see you and know you today through, through your word. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder if I asked you this question, what your answer would be. I don't want to hear your answer out loud because it might cause a little bit of controversy. Um, but I'm curious what, what you think your answer would be if I were to ask you this question. What is the biggest problem in our country? See why I don't want you to answer out loud. What is the biggest problem in our country right now? If you had to boil everything down to this is it. This is why there's pain and brokenness and why things aren't going according to the way they should be in our country. I wonder what you would say. I looked up what people, what people say. There was, a, there was a study that was done. Um, this was in 2019 and uh, it surveyed America. I've never gotten one of these surveys, by the way. I don't know if you've ever been surveyed. I've, I always wonder who are they asking these questions to because I've never been asked. I'd love to be asked. But anyways, here's apparently what America said. The top five were this, biggest problems in America. One is affordable health care. That was number one on the list. Two was drug addiction. Three was uh, having affordable college education. Four was the federal deficit. And five was climate change. So those were the top five. And I wonder if yours made that list at any point there. But what if I were to switch the question to not be about our country, but to actually be about you and your life? What is your biggest problem? What is the biggest problem facing you in your life right now? Maybe you would say there's difficult people in your life that are just a pain and they're causing all this stuff and they're the biggest problem in my life right now. Maybe for you, the biggest problem has just been nothing seems to break your way. You just can't seem to get a break. Maybe you're lonely and that's your biggest problem. Maybe financial security is the biggest problem in your life right now. You're just chasing that and you can't seem to find it. Maybe it's fear or anxiety or a whole host of possible answers we could give. But when we tend to think about that question, what's the biggest problem in the world or in my life? One answer that seems to be conveniently missing is us, right? Surely we aren't the problem with things. Surely the, the biggest problems in the world and in my life are out there. It's, it's other people or it's things going on out there that are making things hard and miserable. For me, surely it could not possibly be that I am the biggest problem. Right? We would never look at the country and say, the biggest problem is me, that I live here and I contribute this. Or the biggest problem in my life is, is me and, and how I view things. We, we tend to not have that kind of perspective. It's usually something out there. But scripture, as we read the scriptures, we actually tend to see that scripture tells us that our biggest problems in life are not out there, they're in here. They're not out there with other people, though those might be problems and though they might be big problems. Your and my biggest problem is in here. It's in our hearts. It's our own propensity to sin. No matter how big of problems we face, there is no greater problem than our own sin. And this morning when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 13, which is the real start of King Saul's reign as king of Israel, if you were to ask Saul what his biggest problem was, he would have for sure told you his biggest problem was the Philistines. 
They threaten him at all times. They're the most powerful enemy he can see. His people have no weaponry. They're hard pressed on every side all the time. They're hated by these people. The Philistines are his biggest problem as king of Israel. If you were to ask him, that's what he would say. And in this story today, he comes face to face with them. But we're going to see as he comes face to face with what he thinks is his biggest problem, it's actually not. Saul's biggest problem as the king of Israel is his own sin. It's a much bigger deal than the Philistines. And so this entire story today is really a test for King Saul. It's a test to see, does he consider God's word important? Is sin even a big deal to him? The whole story is going to function as one big test for Saul. As we begin in chapter 13, the first few verses, we get um, brought back to something that happened in 1 Samuel chapter 10. If you remember with me, when, when, king, when Saul was anointed as king of Israel by Samuel, who was the, the priest at this point, the judge of Israel, he anoints uh, Saul as the next king of Israel and he gives him a very specific instruction of what he's supposed to do. If you remember this, when you were with us a few weeks ago, he tells him to go fight against the Philistines and then go wait for him at, the, at Gilgal, which is an area in Israel. So he tells Saul, says, okay, you're going to be king. So go fight the Philistines, go attack them, and then go to Gilgal and wait for me for seven days. And so it's been about a year since Saul's been anointed king. And it seems like now he's finally getting around to doing what Samuel told him to do. Right, Because you remember he was anointed king and then he was still working out in the fields, tending the oxen, and then he hears about a, a, you know, a potential battle going on. And it, it's just, it seems like Saul's taking his time to actually start acting like a king. And so finally he's listening to Samuel and he goes and, and he, he assembles his army and puts his army together. And it's interesting um, just to note, First uh, Samuel chapter 13, verse 1, it tells us um, that Saul had lived for one year and then became king and then he reigned for two years. It's not saying that, that Saul became king when he was a one-year-old and then he only reigned for two years and finished his kingly reign at three years old. Um, that's not what it's saying. Um, there's, there's some debate about exactly what's happening here, but I think what, what we're being told is that it's been a year since Saul's been anointed king and now he's stepping into the role of acting like it, but he's only going to spend about two years being legitimately the king of Israel until the Lord fully rejects him. Because Saul would be king for about 40 years, but only two of them before he's fully rejected by the Lord as a legitimate king over Israel. And so if you remember this back in 1 Samuel 10, this is what Samuel told Saul to do. And so Saul finally is doing this. He's gathering together his army and it splits off into two different sections. His son, Jonathan, is leading one of them. And Jonathan has this small victory against the Philistines. And, and as he has this small victory, it, it really rouses up the Philistines. The Israelites get really excited. They start, you know, wow, we have a victory over the Philistines. This is amazing. Um, Saul makes sure everybody knows about it so that they wake up and, and muster up some, some excitement about this. But it also functions as waking up kind of a sleeping giant of the Philistines of like, okay, so you want to fight. All right, let's do this. And so the Philistines respond with like overwhelming force. They just send massive swarms of people to get ready to fight the Philistines or to get ready to fight the Israelites. So they respond with overwhelming force, so much so that everyone is terrified in Israel. This is an amazing verse where it tells, it tells us uh, in verse 6 that everyone went to hide themselves in caves, in holes, in rocks, in tombs, and in cisterns. How terrified do you have to be to go hide in a tomb? By the way, that's like, I mean, you have to be very scared. 
Everyone's terrified of the Philistines because of the force that they're responding with. Defeat seems imminent. So much so that not only are people hiding, it tells us that people were leaving the promised land. This has been hundreds and hundreds of years in the making for God to deliver his people into the promised land and give them this land that he promised them. They're finally dwelling in it. They're living in it. And these people are so scared that they're leaving. Like it seems safer to just leave God's land that he promised to us and go somewhere else because of how imminent defeat looks by the Philistines. And we're told at the end of this chapter, no one in Israel has swords or spears. How are they supposed to, how are they supposed to beat the Philistines? And we talked about this early on in our first, when we started 1 Samuel, that the Philistines have kind of hoarded all of the, the metal necessary, all the blacksmith work to create these weapons. And they've just created this situation to where if the Israelites need anything, they have to come to the Philistines. And so they've made sure that they don't have legitimate weapons. How, how can they defeat us if we don't give them any weapons? And that's exactly what's happened. And so the people of Israel are freaked out and you can understand why. They don't have the numbers. They don't have the military strength. They don't have the weapons. So they're hiding and they're running and they're terrified. And I'm left asking this question as I, as I read this of what in the world is God doing? What in the world is God doing? This is, this is the land God promised to his people. He tells his people, you're my chosen people. He wants to give them victory over their enemies. We see him want to do that all the time. And yet he brings them to this place where they're so terrified. And I have to wonder, God, what are you doing? Don't you care that your people are terrified? Don't you want them to be confident? Don't you want them to be victorious? Why would you bring them to such a place of weakness before the nations? And if you remember, God was the one that told Saul to do this. Go attack the Philistines and then go wait at Gilgal. So what is he doing? I think God knows that Saul and Israel are terrified and he's compassionate about that. But I think God knows something that we tend to not really understand. And for this people, it was this, is that victory over the Philistines was not Israel's deepest need. It seemed like their most immediate need and their most pressing need because they're about to be killed, but it's not their deepest need. And God knows that. Victory over the Philistines is not their deepest need. Their deepest need and God's deepest desire for his people is that his people would be more and more dependent on him. That's a deeper need than victory over the Philistines. And that's God's desire for us today is that we would rely on him for everything that we need. The biggest need in our life is not for things to go well and successful. Our deepest need in life is that we would see we need Jesus for everything. You know, it's often been a, a common critique of Christianity over the last couple of years. Maybe you've, maybe you've heard this before, but, but sometimes people will call um, Christianity, oh, you know, that's just, that's just a crutch for you. Yeah, because you, you, you can't get through life. You're not strong enough. You're not successful. Christianity is just kind of this crutch for you that you lean on because you're weak and you're needy. And it's just, I, I don't need a crutch. If we ever hear that critique, we should say, actually, it's, it's much worse than that. It's actually much more than a crutch. Actually, it's, 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 like, a, it's like a stretcher. It's, it's like life support, actually. Without it, I have nothing. 
We, we want to respond to that. I'm like, oh, no, no, it's not, it's not a crutch. It's, it's uh, I'm good. I'm str-. No, like lean into it. It's fine. It, it's much more than that. If God's deepest desire for us is to make us like Christ, which is what scripture tells us, it's your sanctification is the big Bible word, to make you holy, to sanctify something, meaning to set something apart, to make you set apart like Christ. If that's God's desire for our lives is to make us like Christ, Christ was fully dependent on the Lord when he was here on earth. It is to make us fully dependent on God. That is his deepest desire for us as his people. Now, the people that are hiding in caves and leaving the promised land probably don't think that. They probably think, my greatest need right now is to be saved from the Philistines. And we understand that. Because we know what it's like to be like, well, that might be my deepest need, but it's not the one I care about right now. I care about my most immediate need right now, which is right before me. That's what these people are feeling. And we understand that because we share a perspective with every human being that our circumstances are more important than our sanctification. It is more important for our circumstances to go well than it is for us to be made more like Christ. That's what we genuinely, practically on the ground believe. We might confess, oh no, no, I know my circumstances are less important than being made like Christ. But on the ground, we believe, no, 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 my circumstances are like the most important thing. I mean, just maybe look at your prayers. What do you pray for the most? Do you pray more for circumstances or holiness? I mean, how often are our prayers, God, give me a good day today? How many prayed that? I prayed that like today. God, give me a good, what? I don't even know what that means. Give me a good day today. God, help this to go smoothly. We pray that all the time. Or we're walking into something potentially difficult. We pray, God, would you just put your blessing on it? Just help this to go smoothly and well without any hiccups. And may I just have the favor of everyone around me, Lord. Just I pray that in Jesus' name. We pray that stuff all the time. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, if I'm choosing, like, oh, yeah, I would prefer for things to go smoothly and things to go well and the Lord to just bless that. Yes. Thank you. I would love that. But if we were to boil that down, maybe what we're actually praying is, God, give me a life that requires minimal dependence on you. Help things to go so smoothly and well that I don't need to be brought to a place where I need anything from you. Maybe that's what we're actually praying when we say those things. Just like Israel does here, when circumstances are scary and difficult, we run. We run for cover. We hide and we cry out to God, save us what's happening. Don't you see all this stuff going on around me? It's terrifying. It's awful. Don't you care about me? Don't you love me? I can't face this. It's going to destroy me. It's going to crush me. Change it. Help it to go smooth. Fix it. Work it out. And there's nothing wrong with that. We should cry out to God if that is how we're feeling and that's what's going on in our lives. But God's deepest desire for us is to grow us in dependence on him so that the more we face situations like that, we realize I don't need to run. I don't need to hide. I have Christ with me. He will be all that I need. And so I think 
with Israel here, God is doing something larger than just the, the, the moment, the, the story right here. He's, he's drawing and inviting his people to depend on him because he knows that's what they need more than anything. Just fixing the problem of the Philistines doesn't help them moving forward for the next time it happens. Because rather than always just shielding us from hard things, God promises to always be with us no matter what hardship he brings. And that's better. We prefer God just keep all the hard things away. But actually he promises something better. He says, I'll be with you no matter what hardship I bring your way. And he's committed to making us a people that can be confidently dependent on him no matter what hard comes our way. It's a great theologian and pastor. His name is John Piper. You may have heard of him. He's very famous for saying this, that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. That the thing that brings God the most glory is when you and I find all of our satisfaction in him. Not in our circumstances or our success or our relationships, but we find all we need, all our satisfaction in Christ. That's when he's most glorified. And I'd add to it this, is that you and I are most sanctified, we're most made like Christ when we are most dependent on him. The more we are dependent on him, the more we get made like him, the more we start to enjoy him, and then the more he's glorified. And so if that's the case, this may sound strange, but if that's the case, it may actually be God's grace to walk us through painful, scary, hard things. It may actually be his grace to walk us through hard things because he's committed to addressing our deepest needs. And if our deepest need is to be more like him and be more dependent on him, it may be his grace to carry us through hard things so that we can depend on him. And so for this point in in Israel's story, there's no one leading them in this. There's no one calling them to depend on the Lord. No one. Samuel has kind of been pushed away. They said, we don't really want you anymore, Samuel. You're old. We want Saul. And so everyone's scared. They are very much like sheep without a shepherd. They're just scattered and terrified. And the one person that's supposed to be leading them and calling them to remember who God is, is the most scared. It's King Saul. He's the most terrified. Let's look at what he does. So Samuel had told him to wait seven days. And at the end of that seven days, he was going to come and Samuel was going to offer sacrifices to the Lord to seek his blessing and his favor. This was what God called them to do. And Samuel, because he's functioning as a prophet, when Samuel speaks, God speaks. And so when Saul hears the words of Samuel, he's hearing the instruction of God. So he is to listen to Samuel. And so he goes to Gilgal. He's obeyed all the way up until this point. He attacked the Philistines. He went to Gilgal. He waited one day, two days, Three days, four days, five days, six days, seventh day is here. Where is Samuel? Like it's seventh day is here. Where are you? And he's terrified. And we, I I can understand why. He's obeyed up until this point, but there's so much pressure mounting on him. 
And everything around him is telling him, you can't wait any longer. This is the moment. If you don't do something now, you're doomed. And it tells us all the things that are happening. The Philistines are closing in on every side. The people are deserting him. His, his army is leaving him. Because they're like, dude, it's been seven days. We're, we've been waiting. He's not here. I'm out. The people are leaving. By the second, they're getting weaker and weaker as an army. And it's the seventh day, and Samuel's still not here. Now, it's important for us to note, Samuel could have come in the morning. He could have come at the end of the day, and it still would have been the seventh day. Saul was to wait seven days, seven full days. He's on the seventh day. But Samuel's still not here yet. And so I think Saul gets to this point. He's like, this is ridiculous. This is absurd. I'm not going to sit here and wait any longer. We need to do something. I'm not going to sit and wait any longer. Continuing to obey and wait is becoming foolish and dangerous. It's almost as if he has this perspective that God is demanding unreasonable requirements of obedience and faith. God, this is unreasonable for me to continue to wait on your man to come here and offer these sacrifices. It's foolish. It's dangerous. I'm not going to do it any longer. I've obeyed enough all the way up until this point. I've done everything you asked, but right now it no longer makes any sense. It's unreasonable what you're asking me to do now. So he takes matters into his own hands and he himself offers the sacrifices instead of Samuel, which was a giant no-no. Friends, if we weigh obedience to Jesus against our filter of reasonableness, you won't follow Jesus. If we weigh obedience to Jesus through the filter of, is, does, this re, does this seem reasonable to me? You'll never faithfully follow Jesus. What I'm not saying in that is I'm not saying that Christianity is not a, a reasonable faith that makes sense to the mind and you can think through it absolutely is. But Jesus calls us to do things and live in a way that does not line up with our standard of what we think is reasonable or safe or comfortable. Hello. It doesn't. Our culture likes to use this line of thinking all the time to downplay the Bible or to downplay being faithful to what God commands in the Bible, particularly in two areas, sex and money. Our culture wants to tell everyone the Bible is unreasonable when it comes to those two categories in particular. Sex and money. It looks at the, the Bible's sexual ethic, that sexual activity is reserved for a husband and wife in marriage. That's what the Bible lays forward as the biblical sexual ethic. That everything outside of that is outside of God's design. That's, that's the ethic that the scriptures lay forward. And our culture looks at that and says, that's unreasonable. That's pretty unrealistic. Right? Everybody has to indulge a little bit. Everybody looks at pornography. Everybody does that. Right? The, these desires that you have, they're natural. Surely God would never call you to, de to deny something that's natural to you. That would be cruel. If somebody actually lived that way, they'd be miserable. It's 2021. 
Nobody thinks this way. I mean, you got to know if you're compatible, right? Surely God understands that. Or with money. Right? What's, the, what's the Bible's perspective on money? Uh, all of it is his. All of it belongs to him. We have none of it unless it comes through him. And the scriptures lay out this thing for God's people since the beginning. For centuries upon centuries, God's people have been tithing. What is that about? Tithing is the idea of giving the first fruits of something to the Lord. It's a way of confessing, this is not mine, it's yours. And I communicate that by taking the very first of it. Before I get it, I give it to you. And there were tithes on multiple things. Us, we've kind of conveniently kind of made it like just our money, maybe 10%, but I don't know, that feels unreasonable. I'll kind of dwindle it down and just, maybe I won't even tithe, I don't know. But for centuries, God's people have been doing this. And the scriptures lay it out as just a normal practice for followers of Jesus. That you tithe on what you have, not as a way to earn anything from God, but as a way of saying, this isn't even mine, it's yours. I give it to you as a recognition that it's yours. I cut off the first top of it, right? So like a 10% tithe, I give it to you, Lord. And I give generously. But we tend to run that through a filter of, well, is that reasonable? Surely God doesn't want you to be like stressed out about paying for things and lumping off a big chunk at the top of the beginning. He's gonna make you so stressed about how to pay your bills and your rent and what to eat. And surely God doesn't want you to like stress about those things. So don't worry about that. That's, that's just kind of unreasonable. Like Southern California is really expensive. Surely God, he understands that. I mean, is your money really gonna make like a difference? Like it's a small amount. It's like a drop in a bucket. Like what? It's not gonna make that much of a difference. And we run obedience to Jesus through a filter of, is it reasonable? Does it kind of make sense to my values and what I think, how I should live? And our culture wants to say that what the Bible puts forward as obedience is unreasonable. It's out of touch. Our world has this perspective. If it's too hard to do, Surely, because God is love, he won't ask you to do it. If it makes you too stressed out, if it's too much of a burden on you, surely, because God is love, he won't ask you to do those things. Friends, God's law is literally meant to level you. God's commands and his standards are literally meant to crush you. That is actually one of the main points of the law is that it would be so heavy and so weighty on you that you would see, here's what God requires of man. And it would crush you to the point where you're like, I can't do it. I just, I literally can't do that. I don't have it in me to obey like that. I don't have the desire to do it. I don't have the power to do it. I don't have the stamina to do it. I cannot do it. It is meant to be like a wall that we just come crashing into. So that we lift up our eyes and say, well, I can't, I can't do it. I need help. I need, a, I need rescue. I need a savior. I need someone to save me because I can't do it. I can't do what's required of me. It's actually one of the main points of God's law. And so if we look at God's commands and we have the perspective of like, yeah, I got that. You're not looking at God's law. You're looking at some fabricated, transformed version of it to where people have lowered the bar to say, you can clear it. You got it. 
You can't. And that's actually the point. It's, it makes us run to him to say we need a savior and we need power to live this way because we can't. We need you. And so church, Jesus has called his people to live a radically different way than everyone else. To live in a way that actually doesn't line up with the world's standards of reasonableness. We've been called to live a life that requires dependence on him. But like Saul, we're really good at coming up with some good excuses for why we don't have to listen. We're really good at coming up with excuses for like, ah, I know you said this, God, but like, ugh. I mean, look at all the excuses that Saul comes up with. The first one, he blames the people. He says, the people, they were scattering. What was I to do? It's the people's fault. Or Samuel, it was your fault. You weren't coming fast enough. It was the seventh day and you weren't here yet. Or he blames the Philistines. They were threatening me. That sounds so childish. They were threatening me, right? It's like brother and sister. He's looking at me. He even blames the Lord. We didn't have the Lord's favor yet. My favorite is the last one. Saul or Samuel, don't get, don't get mad at me. I forced myself to disobey. All of this was happening and it was so bad. I had been waiting. I had obeyed the whole time I had obeyed. But at the end, it just, it didn't make sense anymore. But I was still so holy. I didn't want to do it, but I forced myself to do it. So don't, don't get mad at me. As if like that was like revealing some holiness. Like I, I forced myself to disobey. We can always find a good excuse to disobey Jesus. What's yours been lately? We can always find one that makes sense. I was, I was stressed. I just, I'm just weak. I, I, it just it wasn't making sense. I, don't, I forced myself. I, uh, the people, you, we, we can always find an excuse. What's yours been? At the end of the day, here's what Saul believes. Saul believes that partial obedience is enough. Obeying for 6.5 days was enough. Partial obedience. Surely that will count for something. But what he doesn't understand is that partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. Right, Saul was, I'll, I'll obey up until the point where it gets really hard and weird and uncomfortable and dangerous. And surely that'll count enough to cover up the small amount of disobedience. But partial obedience is disobedience. Look at what Samuel says in response in verse 13 and 14. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly, which is the Bible's way of saying you are a fool. Not just you've done something that was just kind of dumb. You're a fool. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then, if you had, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. 
And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Because Saul thought partial obedience was enough, and in reality it was disobedience, God removes his throne from his line forever. If you had obeyed, I would have established your family line as the kingly throne in Israel forever. But because you disobeyed, it ends with you. And we hear that and uh, we think, uh, God, are you okay? Like, that seems really harsh. It seems harsh to us. Like, wait, he obeyed for almost all the time, but at the end he didn't listen and you took away his throne forever? You're punishing generations down in his line to not be king? Like, that seems really harsh. It does to our ears. And it's because to sinners, God's wrath is always too harsh. To sinners, God's wrath is always too harsh. The punishment seems to never fit the crime because we don't think sin is really a big deal. And so whether it's here or whether it's in our day today of, wait, you're telling me that sinners go to hell? Jeez, like somebody get God some medication to calm him down. Like that seems absurd send people to hell because they've sinned? Like, if this is all real, like, that is way harsh. I'm I mean, that's not just non-Christians that think that. You, Christians, you think that too, sometimes, to be honest. The wages of sin will always seem harsh to us if our view of God's holiness is small. You will never view God's punishment for sin as just and fair and right unless you view his holiness for what it is. I use this illustration on Easter, but it's worth repeating. When you sin against someone, the, the, the punishment is worse based on who that person is, right? We talked about this. If you punch a criminal in the face, you're probably not getting in that much trouble, right? In fact, it might just even be self-defense if he, if he was attacking you and you're fine. If you punch your friend, you might get in a little more trouble. If you punch your boss, you're going to get in a little bit more. You might get fired. And the higher it goes, the worse it is. If you punch a president or if you attempt to punch a president, you get 10 years in prison immediately. Because we understand this. The more important a person is, the greater the punishment is when you sin or wrong them. Right? It is the same way with God, but to an eternal extent. God is, if, if, if it is true that God exists, then he is eternal. He is all powerful. He is almighty and he is perfect. And he is good and he is just. And when we sin against him, it's not just a mistake. It's a rebellion against his authority and his goodness. It is saying, God, you are a bad God. I'm a better one. You don't deserve worship. You deserve rebellion. You're evil. 
And because of how holy and perfect he is, for us to have the perspective of we're better than you, you're evil, we do our, your job better than you can do your job, we've sinned against the most perfect, holy, just, righteous being in all of the universe. The wages for that is not like a $20 fine because of who it's against. Because he is just and good, he must respond with judgment to sin. And the wages of sin is death because of how good he is. So if you don't view the holiness of God as a big deal, you'll never view sin as a big deal. They're directly correlated with one another. And so Saul here is rejected as king because he's a disobedient king who doesn't care about God's word. And that's the, the entire job description of the king of Israel is the one who is to care about God's word. And Saul's story reminds us that we need to take sin seriously. And God will always bring his judgment down on sin. It's just a matter of if you're covered or not. John chapter 3 says this, verse 18, I have this on the screens. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so what that tells us is that the only people that are under the wrath of God for their sins are those that choose to be. Right? Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Because Jesus has taken your punishment for your sins. Judgment was poured out on him instead of you. You're covered by him. But for those who do not believe, you're already condemned. Because that's your state as, as a sinner. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's what sin is. Do we take it seriously? Do you take your sin seriously? I'm not asking, do you take your neighbor's sin seriously? Do you take the government's sin seriously? I'm asking, do you take yours seriously? We're really good at taking other people's sin seriously. That's no problem. How about ours? Or have you become numb to it? Have you just been really good at making excuses and rationalizing it away? Here's the truth. All of our obedience to Jesus, even on our best effort, is partial obedience. All of our obedience to Jesus is partial obedience because we can't escape sin. It is still weaving its way in. Because even when we obey, our obedience is stained with sin. We still do it for selfish reasons. Sure, I might be generous and give what I have to the Lord, but I kind of want to do it because it makes me feel better about myself. Or I'll serve others and help others because that's what God calls me to do and I want to be obedient to Him, but they'll also think more highly of me if I do it. Even our best obedience is stained. Which leaves us in this place of saying, we need a savior because we can't do it. We need a rescuer and we need it to be a savior who can obey perfectly. Unlike us, that's what we need. And thankfully we have that in Christ. You see in this story, 
Saul is portrayed for us as a, another Adam from, from the book of Genesis. Another Adam. He, Saul is portrayed as just another Adam. They're both the heads of their own family, right? Adam, the head of his family. Saul, the head of his, his nation. Both failed the test and rejected the word of God. Both, when called out on their sin, ran to cover and hide and refuse responsibility and blame others. Both Adam and Saul both lost something eternal because of their sin. And both of their sins had horrific consequences on those that they represented. Saul's just like another Adam. Just like us. But it lifts our eyes to Jesus, who we are told from the book of Romans is a better Adam. He's a better Adam. That Adam laid out this pattern that Jesus would take up and complete. Because in Jesus, we see Jesus is the head of the leader of God's people. And Jesus does what Saul should have done. And he passes every test and every temptation. And he obeys perfectly his whole life. Never once stained with sin. Always saw it all the way through and obeyed perfectly. And he was the one that could have accused others, could have blamed others for their sins, but instead took our blame on his shoulders. And Jesus, as a better Adam, doesn't lose anything eternal, but in fact wins something eternal for his people. And through Jesus' obedience and his victory, he brings blessings for us. This is what Romans 5 says. Therefore, as one trespass, which was Adam's sin in the beginning, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, that's Adam. In Jesus, the new Adam, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus, the true king after God's heart, who knows we can't obey him, obeys perfectly in our place. Meaning, we can now be declared righteous by his merit. Jesus, the true king, comes to dethrone sin and death and goes to the cross, forgiving us and freeing us. Meaning, when we see our sins, we don't have to make excuses. We can repent and find forgiveness. Jesus, the true king, who reigns forever and is always with us. Meaning this, we now have the power we need to depend on him and trust in him and follow him. You see, we, friends, need a king much better than Saul. We need a king who can look at us in our temptation and say, I've been there. I've seen this one all the way through. I know how hard it is. I'm with you. Trust me. We need a king who can see us when we sin and say, I paid for that. I'm still with you. Trust in me. And we need a king who's going to see us at the end when we stand before him and say, you're righteous by my merits. Come be with me forever. See, this story is but another one to lift up our eyes to see we need a better king. And we have one in Jesus. May we run to him. May we depend on him for everything that we need and find our righteousness in him that he can obey perfectly even though we cannot. He's good. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Lord, we don't like to be reminded of our own sin because it is great. But Lord, we thank you that every time you remind us of how great our sin is, you remind us of how much greater your mercy is. 
And so we're thankful for that. Would you make us a people who run to you, who are dependent on you, who take sin seriously because we believe that you are holy? Would you make us a church that's committed to following you no matter how unreasonable people might think it is? Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your mercy to cover our sins. Would you make us a church that's dependent on you for all that we need? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.